In my senior year of high school, my English class had a unit on interpretation of poetry. Our teacher insisted that understanding the intent of the poet was crucial. If we didn't understand what the poem meant, then either we needed to get better at interpreting it, or the poet just wasn't very skilled. This was not a matter of our own interpretation. My class disagreed, vociferously as I remember, and with one united voice. We were young hormonal creatures struggling to understand the world around us. We reasoned that our personal interpretation of a poem should be judged not by its correctness, but by its usefulness. Did the poem inspire us? If so, then what did it matter what the poet meant? Certainly, multiple interpretations of a good poem are possible. Wouldn't it be wonderful to take meaning from the poem that the poet never intended? Who was more in the right? Our teacher, who was determined to help us develop our critical thinking skills so we wouldn't just feel that anything goes and turn into postmodernists? Or we students who loved dramatic stories, emotional imagery, and mysterious, opaque 1980s song lyrics? Well, let's take these questions to the mountaintop. How shall we interpret the poetry of Jesus' transfiguration? The gospel writer, Matthew, in this case, tells us a story purportedly received from Peter, James, and John, but not told to anyone until after the resurrection. How do we interpret the gospel writer's meaning in telling the story in just this way? Is it straight-up journalism? What if it were something else? Would that make it less worthy of being believed? How do we interpret the words from the second letter of Peter, in which the writer insists that he himself is Peter, witness, eyewitness to the transfiguration? How do we square this with the scholarly consensus that this letter wasn't written until decades or even a century after Peter's death? Is the transfiguration literal fact? Is it poetry? And if it were poetry, would that make it a cleverly devised myth, which is exactly what the letter writer says it is not? One of the most common criticisms lobbed at Episcopalians by some other Christians is that maybe we don't believe as strongly or as unflaggingly as they do. It's true that we don't make members sign a statement of assent to a list of dogmas, we do, though, proclaim the 4th century Nicene Creed in unison every week, unlike most churches. But nobody's making sure your fingers aren't crossed behind your back. There is a solid center of Christian theology that we teach in the Episcopal Church. But we don't force agreement, because we recognize that none of us knows it all, and that we keep learning all our lives. So you can see where this accusation against Episcopalians comes from. But it isn't totally fair either, because it's based on a different understanding of how belief works in the first place. More importantly, perhaps, it's based on a different understanding of what the Bible even is and what it's for. 
in our time, I see that fundamental difference splitting the worldwide Christian church into two camps. I will call them the modern camp, and not the postmodern camp, but the contextual camp. The modern camp trusts the written word preserved for centuries to be more reliable than any word of experience spoken fresh today. The modern reader of the Bible is more likely to insist that everything in the Bible literally happened, from the creation of the world in six literal days all the way down to Jesus literally returning at the end of the world with a very literal sword. Why? Because it's written in the Bible that we claim to believe. Well, this gets everybody on the same page, and it filters out the people who won't get with the program, but it also demands that we never notice the glaring, irreconcilable contradictions found within the Bible's pages. You don't have to get far into the book of Genesis to find the first few. Did God create humans first or animals first? Where did Cain get his wife? Did Noah bring two pairs of every animal on the ark or seven? The reader who discovers these challenges may feel that the Bible has become suspect or even useless. There has been a violation of what the reader had been taught was true. For the modernist then, if it's written down in the Bible, we have a choice. Either we believe it's God's actual words to us or we don't. So whether I'm talking to a fundamentalist young earther or someone who denies that even Jesus ever existed, I know I'm dealing with a modern reader. A number of years ago, Ken Ham, the fundamentalist founder of the Creation Museum, engaged in a televised debate with Bill Nye, the science guy. The whole thing was pointless because there were no shades of gray, only two stubbornly modern thinkers shouting past each other. In fact, though, the Bible is not a book, but a library. Some of its stories literally happened. Other parts of the Bible are poetry that may well change the course of our lives. This is the contextual approach, and it's no less faithful. I say it's more faithful because it does not begin by denying facts. And when we join the contextual camp, we can embrace the power and the value of myth. Oh, but myth is a loaded word, isn't it? We just heard the writer of 2 Peter say, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. He insists that he himself is the source of the knowledge, and he's writing it down to share it with you while false teachers are trying to lead you astray with fabricated stories. Is Peter a biblical literalist? Well, we'll never know for sure who these false teachers were that he's warning us about, but there are some good theories. Early in Christian history, stories from the school of Gnosticism flourished. For instance, that the God Yahweh of the Jews who created our world was an imperfect or even evil being, and that Jesus came to rescue us for the one true God who was beyond even Yahweh. The one true God, though, was so cosmic and so perfect that he could not even be aware of the existence of human beings, for any knowledge of such imperfections as 
crude flesh would corrupt him. Salvation was only available to those who possessed this secret knowledge, and it was very much spiritual and not at all physical. Stories like these may well be what the writer means by cleverly devised myths that ignore key facts, that Jesus was human for one thing and had some of that crude flesh on him, that he was a faithful Jew, and that human imperfection is not necessarily the same thing as corruption. By contrast, the ancient Jews shared the story of a loving God's orderly creation, a powerful God calling a people out of slavery and into covenant, a persistent God sending prophets to remind us that love is the only way to live. The Bible does indeed contain both fact and fiction. It is not exclusively one or the other, and we'll never know exactly where the dividing line is. Many of the facts that it contains are too ancient to be definitively proven, but there is good evidence for many of them. The fiction the Bible contains may seem cleverly devised, but more likely it developed over time in the context of a faithful community of Jews straining to understand the very nature of God, sometimes living faithfully, oftentimes not at all, but always with the North Star of their sacred stories, histories, and poetry to call them back again. After all this context, though, I think we'd better get back to the mountaintop, where Peter stands slack-jawed, somehow recognizing Moses and Elijah, whose faces he has never seen before, by the way. He's acting like Peter always acts, with earnestness and urgency. Quick, get the video camera, mark the spot with an X, build a shrine. We need to report the facts as accurately as possible. Peter misses the point of the transfiguration. In trying to preserve the moment, he's devaluing it. He needs God the Father to step in and shout, Yo, Peter, snap out of it. Only then does Peter begin to understand this Jesus is not just our friend who is leading us on a hike. This is the universal Christ, the energy by which the world has been made. How then might we interpret the story of the transfiguration in all its poetry? There are so many options. We could decide, we could decide that none of this really happened that Peter and the other apostles fabricated a cleverly devised myth meant to deceive the whole world. But we'd be ignoring a whole bunch of evidence to the contrary. Paul's written claim of hundreds of living eyewitnesses to the risen Christ, the boldness of the early apostles and their joy, the commonality of martyrdom in the face of Roman persecution, etc., etc., We could decide that had we been there with a video camera, we would have seen a literal cloud and heard a literal booming voice. But wouldn't our literalism miss the point? Anyway, I've had my own personal experiences that I interpret as God speaking to me. I wouldn't call it a booming voice from heaven, but somebody else might have experienced it or expressed it differently. We could decide, if we wanted to, that Jesus' transfiguration means he's actually an alien from outer space. 
we could find this to be both inspiring and believable, we would still be wrong. So I think my 12th grade English teacher was right in a lot of ways. When it comes to interpreting the Bible, it's not just a matter of our own interpretation. We can't just say anything goes, anything does not go. It is very possible for us to be wrong. But I also think my classmates and I were on to something. Poetry matters and does not speak with a single voice. Poetry changes the course of our lives. If we center our lives on the story of God, the Holy Trinity, creating, redeeming, sustaining the universe, then we know the divine power is not limited by the words we choose to describe it with. Whether we interpret rightly or wrongly, the Holy Spirit is with us, providing a lamp shining in a dark place to help us wait through the long night until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. The morning star is Christ. That's my interpretation, and I'm sure I'm not alone. There may be other right interpretations. There are plenty of wrong interpretations. And God loves us all regardless. So let's get over our fear of being wrong and get back to loving God and loving one another. That's enough ongoing transfiguration for every one of our lives. Amen.